Want to hear more about life from a Catholic perspective? Ave Spotlight is a new weekly podcast where you can listen to hosts Father Dennis Strack, CSC, and Katie Prejean McGrady as they talk with special guests about culture, current events, and all things Catholic. You'll walk away with a better understanding of your faith and how to live it in the world today. Check it out on AveMariaPress.com. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow Ave Maria Press on social media. Church Life Today is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and our listeners. O God, smash the teeth in their mouths. Make their eyes so dim they cannot see. May his children be fatherless, his wife a widow. Who prays like that? Well, we do. Christians. Those petitions, those curses that I just recited, they come from Psalm 58, Psalm 69, and Psalm 109 but we don't hear them very often. We don't hear them in the public liturgy as at the Mass. We don't hear them in the liturgy of the hours that we might pray alone. What is being lost by not praying things like that in just those words, the words of Scripture, especially the Psalms? Those were examples of the imprecatory Psalms. My guest today says we need to bring these Psalms back into the regular life of the Church. He wrote an essay for our Church Life Journal with the very direct title, Bring Back the Imprecatory Psalms. This is the voice of Christ himself who, in praying the Psalms, took on even these cries, which the abused and the oppressed offer up to God against their victimizers and the wicked. Timothy Troutner is a doctoral student in systematic theology at Notre Dame where he focuses on the doctrine of creation and the place of language. He is here to talk about this call to bring back the imprecatory psalms, especially now in the wake of scandals in the church and the seeming prosperity of the wicked at the expense of the lowly across the world today. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life and the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm glad you're here. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lenny. It's good to be here. Tim, you're calling for the church to bring back the imprecatory psalms. And so I just want to catch everyone up to speed here at the beginning. So first of all, for those who are unfamiliar, can you let us know what are the imprecatory psalms? The imprecatory psalms refer to imprecations, which is another word for curses, So they are psalms which are known for having a lot of, not every single verse in the psalms, but having a number of what we would call curses contained in them. So usually an imprecatory psalm goes something like this. The wicked are flourishing. Where are you, God? I am either the the psalmist himself is, is being persecuted or like the innocent of the land are being persecuted. And then there's a call for God to arise and then break the teeth of the wicked or kill the wicked or in some way pour out God's wrath on the wicked. And that's basically how an imprecatory psalm proceeds. And so we don't have as much of this and you want to bring them back. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think that when we've encountered these psalms for the first time, they disturb us. And so a lot of the time, 
they have fallen out of our usage. Maybe they're not the passages that we gravitate to when we're reading the Bible or we don't encounter them in the liturgy mm-hmm. um, as often. Where did they go? These psalms. So they were, so just, you know, I'm not trying to be sort of cagey here, but these psalms were more fully a part of the church's life in liturgical prayer, in the daily prayer, say in the liturgy of the hours, but then were at a certain point taken out. Why? I mean, I think many people listening can think, well, yeah, we don't necessarily want to call down curses from God, do we, in our prayer? We right. have to be a little bit gentle about that. That's the part of scripture maybe we turn our eyes from a little bit. So why were these taken out? So they were taken out of the liturgy for in Catholic liturgy, or especially the liturgy of the hours, after the reforms of the Second Vatican Council. Mm-hmm. Not the council itself, but the implementation, the process of implementation of revising the, church, the church's liturgical documents, including the breviaria, or now the liturgy of the hours. And the reasoning at the time, which was a sort of debate which was going on between the members of the Pontifical Commission and the Pope himself, was are these pastorally helpful or or do they cause too much difficulty for modern uh, readers, for modern people in the pews, that their use in the Liturgy of the Hours would be a net detriment? Mm -hmm. And the majority of the commission actually wanted to retain them, but mostly the Pope, Paul VI, along with Annabal Benigni, largely argued that they, they argued and ended up getting their way that they should be taken out, that the the Impractory Psalms, uh, three whole... I believe it's three whole psalms and sections of 19 other psalms and some other portions of both the Old and New Testament were removed. So these are the kind of sections, like you said, there's three whole psalms within bits of others where uh, these are kind of hard on the ear, right? Like you're calling people wicked. You're calling down God's curses upon the wicked who surround us. And so those have been taken out. In some ways, it seems to sort of soften the sound of prayer to maybe not startle or disturb people. But People listening may may be curious as to why you would be calling to bring these back. It was in the wake of the most recent wave of the sexual abuse crisis that it sounds like you started to notice even more acutely the absence of these psalms. Why then did you start to think about the perhaps necessity of these psalms or the place of these psalms in the life of the church? Well, I would say there was actually two stages for me. The first stage was in 2018, listening to the ecclesial responses to the sexual abuse crisis among the clergy and noticing that there was like a vacuum or a void or something was missing. Like there was a certain rhetorical register, a certain seriousness and gravity of the crisis, which the PR statements that we were getting from church, from the church and bishops, they didn't seem to convey how serious the issue was in a way that I think people in the, few, in the pews did understand and were responding with a certain level of anger and frustration. And there wasn't any echo of that anger and frustration in the sort of PR statements that we get from the USCCB or something like that. So I first noticed an absence in the church's response to the sex abuse crisis. Then as I've been reading the Psalms more recently on my own, I've been noticing, wait, there is a biblical register for speaking about the wicked flourishing or the innocent being abused in a way that seems to have no recourse, that seems to be going unpunished. And it was the connection of, the, of that initial void in the way that the church was speaking with discovering that scripture does have a way of speaking about this. And I sort of put one and two together. And, and that's why I thought we needed to bring back the imprecatory psalms. That second part of what you're saying that, you know, in reading the psalms you encountered, here is a way of speaking about the wicked as wicked, to call those who have been wicked actually what they are. 
and actually to cry out in the voice of the abused for God's mercy and God's judgment, for God to intervene, to set things right. The strange thing here, maybe now people are starting to think about this a little bit differently, because first it just sounds like, well, you want more fryer and brimstone, but you're saying, no, the actual situation that we were in, that we are in, the scripture has given us the language to speak this, and yet we have turned off that voice. What did we get instead of that voice, the voice that we might hear echoing in the Psalms? What what kind of words or language did we hear in the wake of the sexual abuse crisis in its place? I think what we got was, in many cases, language which has already been crafted in the corporate boardroom or by like PR experts in order to defend, you know, corporations that have lawsuits against them. And when the church, the church is a is a corporate body that responds in the public square. And Mm -hmm. so when they're going to their lawyers or PR experts, they're recommending a certain register of speaking. Now, there's to a certain degree, there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But it doesn't mark the church's discourse as like particularly theological or scriptural. It just makes it sound like any other corporation. And I and the church is supposed to be enabled by the spirit, I think, to speak in a different way than than the corporate than just any other corporation. Yeah. And oftentimes, I mean, if I might interject myself here a little bit, like the church, when it does try to speak just like everybody else, is just not as good at that kind of speech, right? Like the corporate language doesn't come off as well, especially in the face of such atrocious actions and then the irresponsibility and lack of authority and responsibility to cover of various cover-ups. To not call it what it is, is not just a disservice, it is compounding, it seems, the sinful nature of the thing. So how important do you think, Tim, it is for our language to be embodied and expressed in the faith that we hold. So in other words, like how important is language to faith? I mean, I think it's crucially important because the faith is first given to us in language that is the language of the scriptures. And it's a language which is supposed to like resonate and echo in everything the church does. And we both as as believers and as the church sort of embody the scriptures, carry them forth into the world. Mm. And that's what, that should permeate everything that the church does down to even its press releases, I think, in some way. Mm. Um, and if it doesn't, then we're existing, there's some sort of like performative contradiction, some sort of like contradiction between who the church claims to be and people know that the church claims to be that and what it actually says. Yeah. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on the Spoke Street Media Network. My guest is Timothy Troutner, doctoral candidate in systematic theology at the University of Notre Dame. We're discussing Tim's recent essay for the Church Life Journal, which appeared under the title, Bring Back the Imprecatory Psalms. When we talk there about the language that's used in prayer, in public speech, We would find in many of these psalms, actually in any of the psalms, but let's just say the imprecatory psalms, we'd find language that for me, myself, I might not feel. It's not my language right now. You know, I might not recognize myself as surrounded by the wicked. Sometimes I do, but not not all the time. But here I am, if I'm given this prayer, I have to say it or to be, to feel like I'm the abused or defenseless. But here I'm given this language and I have to say it. What does that do for the body of believers when we have to use language and say things that aren't my own present condition right now. 
Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why the scriptures are so powerful is because we don't just read them. In a certain respect, they read us because they force us to inhabit a perspective that we might not have been inhabiting before. And they, in a sense, they are in a, they're an example of the full range of like the Christian emotional life. And over the course of the liturgical year, we get exposed to that full range, whether it's like weeping, rejoicing, confession, etc. And we might not always on a particular Sunday or when we're reading the Liturgy of the Hours, we might not be feeling that. But over time, as we sort of work our way into the scriptures and allow our sort of like put them on and like find ourselves transformed to be the type of person that can speak them authentically. I think that's how we grow in holiness Mm. in large part is by being measured by the scriptures, by coming to them with the faith that they have something to say to us and that by starting to speak it even before we feel it from the depths of our being, we become the type of person who is conformed to the scriptures. Yeah, this sounds a little maybe counterintuitive to some of us that we would think that when we want to pray, we want to find the words that express where I am right now, right? So maybe this goes into our way of reading scripture itself. Like I'm not going to read the imprecatory Psalms. I'm not going to read Lamentations when I'm actually doing all right. You know, I want to express maybe gratitude. So I'm looking for the prayer to express myself. What's going on with that when I'm when prayer is just about expressing myself? Is there if you're saying that the the scriptural word oftentimes interprets us? It sounds like what I was just describing. I'm looking for the words to exp- I'm interpreting the word. I'm picking and choosing what I want. Do you see some of that going on? Has that been going on in some of these corporate statements or even the excising of the of the uh, liturgy of the hours? Yeah, I think it represents like a major tendency in modern spirituality is to express authentically the what I'm feeling right now. And that can be important at times. That definitely one of the pow- most powerful things of reading scriptures is when we come across a passage, which d- just really hits us with how we are feeling at a particular time. But I think that if that's all we're looking for from the scriptures is then we're just looking for our own thoughts echoed back to us. And we come to scriptures because to the scriptures because God speaks there. And he speaks something that's not all re- that we that we don't already have within us or that we don't know how to express. And maybe we don't even have the feet, maybe we don't have all the spiritual attitudes which we should have. And when we come to the scriptures and we start speaking in the full range of emotions and affective life that the scriptures deliver to us, we become a person who has a a, a richer ability to express than we did before. Mm. I think back to let's say the release of the Pennsylvania grand jury report in 2018 or the further revelations of uh, former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick and the kind of anger that washed over many of the faithful, including those who themselves personally had not been abused. We, we shared in that kind of anger. And yet for many of us, even if we felt disgust and we were pulled in personally by that disgust and shame and grief, it was also still something we read that we encountered out there. For others, those who are the who are abused, who were the direct victims, it was never something that was just outside. By sharing in the same psalms, though, right, by using the same prayers that, again, aren't what I have just chosen to pray. They've it's been what I've been practicing praying time and time again, year after year, as a member of the body of the church. How does that form a kind of solidarity in the church, especially for those who haven't been the direct victims with those who have? 
Yeah, I think it's a form of vicarious identification. It's that solidarity that I'm learning a new way of seeing. From reading the scriptures, I'm learning to see the suffering and the abuse, even if it doesn't directly concern me. So when I read the scriptures, I'm no longer just looking for where is it talking about me? Where is it talking about what I'm feeling at the moment? But where is the world of the entire church around me, including the innocent who are being abused, including the weak who are being oppressed? Where are they in the scriptures? And then I think our vision, our scriptural vision gets expanded when we start mm-hmm. to read the scriptures that way. And not only do we see more, but we begin to identify with others, the others that we see in the scriptures, but also in the world, and that we see in the world through the lens of the scriptures. We begin to, I think, identify them, and then I think we're forced to we're, we're forced to not ignore them and we're for, we're forced to take to take care of them to take responsibility for those that we find the the oppressed in the land that we learn to see in the scriptures but we're always there mm-hmm. in front of us in the world and in the church and because of what we believe in the church about the Psalter that this is really, the voice of the whole Christ, right? Christ himself, Jesus himself took on the Psalms and prayed them as his own prayer. It's actually his language of taking on the entire human condition. That's what we find in the 150 Psalms, right? Like the entire human condition from the deepest lament to the greatest act of praise from grief to joy and everything in between. Is this then to open ourselves as disciples to the entirety of the Psalter? Is that then a way of being further incorporated into Christ? Yeah, I, th- I think that's I think that's exactly what it is. It's become we as individuals, but also as the church, become who we are when we are measured by measured by the Scriptures, and that works out in terms of Christology and ecclesiology as this sort of totus Christus ecclesiology mm-hmm. of Christ is speaking the Psalms, but he's speaking not just for himself. He's speaking in the voice of his whole church, including in this instance, those who feel themselves overwhelmed by the wicked. And we, by learning to pray that way, we identify in a certain respect with Christ who has identified with us, mm. both as individuals and, and collectively. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on the Spoke Street Media Network. My guest is Timothy Troutner, doctoral candidate in systematic theology at Notre Dame. We're discussing his recent essay for the Church Life Journal. It appeared under the title, Bring Back the Imprecatory Psalms. Now, as part of your essay, Tim, right at the beginning, you you wanted to give uh, a sort of representative passage of the imprecatory psalm. So, you know, you're talking about it, but so your readers could also read along with one of these themselves. I was wondering, you know, for the sake of our listening audience, if you would read this passage, which comes from Psalm 69, a little bit of a longer passage, but that way we can hear it as well in addition to talking about it. Certainly. Answer me, Lord, in your generous love, in your great mercy, turn to me. Come and redeem my life. Because of my enemies, ransom me. You know my reproach, my shame, my disgrace. Before you stand all my foes. Insult has broken my heart, and I despair. I looked for compassion, but there was none. For comforters, but found none. Instead, they gave me poison for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar. May their own table be a snare for them, and their communion offerings a trap. Make their eyes so dim they cannot see. Keep their backs ever feeble. Pour out your wrath upon them. Let the fury of your anger overtake them. Make their camp desolate, with none to dwell in their tents. May they be blotted from the book of life, not registered among the just. 
Okay, so there is a turn right in the middle there, right? Like in the first part of that, I think that most of us could say, yes, we should pray this. We're identifying with Christ who was the one who was persecuted, and we can recognize those who are persecuted being in that position. But then there's the turn where there's the requests for the curses to fall down upon the wicked, right? As you said, may their table be a snare for them, their communion offerings a trap, May their eyes become dim, their backs ever feeble, wrath upon them, fury of your anger overtake them, make their camp desolate. Now we can sort of hear like, whoa, do we want to say that in public? Like, do we pray this? Is this, you know, becoming of a Christian to ask for that? We're asking for God's judgment to fall down upon the wicked. Why do we ask for God's judgment to fall down? Isn't this, aren't we ought ought to be looking for God's mercy, even upon the wicked, convert them, you know, heal them, turn them, Lord. But we're asking for judgment. What's going on there? I mean, I think there's two things that we need to clarify for this. The first one is, if we aren't saying this out loud, that doesn't mean that these feelings (laughs) aren't still with us, right? Right. We still have this anger and fury. I mean, if it's not about the sexual abuse crisis, if we haven't personally experienced it, some people certainly do. And there are certainly other things in our lives that we have like actual anger and fury about. We have these deep wounds, this sort of trauma. What the Psalms allow us to do is to take that trauma and that anger that we feel and express them and bring them before God. And there might still be aspects of that which are have a certain dark or disturbing dimension, even in the Psalms. But that's because that, that dark and disturbing dimension, is it's in our hearts. And it's better for us to bring what is in our hearts before God to be transformed and healed through the process of speaking it. As an individual or even collectively, we're based, it's a sort of therapeutic move yeah. for it can be, a divine, a divine therapy for, for the trauma and the anger that we have. So I think what disturbs us in the Psalms is not something that's alien to us. It's what is one of the darkest and deepest aspects of our hearts that we're bringing out to the light of day and exposing to God and saying, this is how I feel. This is what I want. Now, like, receive what I've given back to you and, like, give me, renew renew my heart, as often the Psalms say. Like, yeah. see if there is any wicked way in me. After I've said this whole, you know, like, litany of curses, maybe part of it did come from sinful anger. If so, you know, transform me and heal me. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the first aspect is I think that the darkness that shocks us is a darkness which is already with us. We've just hidden it. And there's a danger that if we never have an opportunity to express it, such as we express it in by praying the imprecatory psalms, it might burst out in more destructive ways right. because it doesn't go away just because we don't pray it in the liturgy. That, so, that anger is still there. Yeah. So on this first point, you're going to have a second point, but on the first one, this is this sounds really important to me. Like we have that those urges and that anger, and what this is doing is giving it a certain speech, but it's not just putting it out there. It's actually offering it to God. We're offering that anger, oftentimes righteous indignation, sometimes, as you said, a sort of sinful anger. We're giving it over to God, which already is a kind of sometimes an act of healing for the one who has been wounded and angered, right? Like, I'm not going to seek to do something about this just on my own. It's being offered to you, Lord. And what I ought to do, help me to do. And in some ways, what you ought to do, I ask you to do. Does that sound right? Yeah. I mean, it, the one of the things about liturgical prayer is it's not just it's not just saying, this is how the ideal prayer would sound. <laughs> it's saying, Let's off. It's in it in sort of like holding up it as an example. Right. Everything that's in the Psalms as like the most healthy attitude one could possibly have. 
it's offering ourselves in the liturgy. We offer ourselves as we actually are to God for transformation. So the speech isn't just being held up as like a paradigm for like, this is the blueprint for how to speak as much as this is who I am and I'm offering it to you, God. Uh, And now take and transform me because the liturgy is a real encounter. It's a real encounter between us and God in which we emerge transformed. Yeah. Okay, so that was the first thing you said about the judgment. There was a second part you were going to get to. Yeah, the second part is I am a little bit worried that in the contemporary church, we've lost the sense that divine judgment can be a good thing Mm. and can actually be in some ways good news. So we definitely always want to pray for mercy and for the repentance of even our enemies. I mean, this is what Christ calls us to, obviously. But sometimes I think the way that a lot of the church fathers interpreted a lot of the expressions of divine wrath in the Old Testament was precisely that it was oriented towards turning the wicked, towards that God. when God does express wrath or anger or punishment, it's because he's chastising, it's because he's he's disciplining his sons. Like that's mm-hmm. what it says in the New Testament. There's a number of passages where it talks about how God disciplines those he loves. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the things, one way of reading the imprecatory Psalms at some of their more disturbing moments is saying, bring judgment on the wicked or break the teeth of the wicked. But that's not necessarily like saying, send them to hell. Never, never love them again. That's not (laughs) what it's saying. It's saying, uh, expose them to your love, which can sometimes be experienced as wrath and anger to someone who's not conformed to God. Mm -hmm. So when God's love is experienced by someone who's not conformed to that love, it can be experienced as punishment, but it's a purifying punishment. That's like, that's what we believe in about purgatory, for example, is that it's the experience of God's love, but it's a love which can be experienced as a sort of purifying fire. And I think perhaps that might be one, that's one way to approach the imprecatory Psalms at some of their more disturbing moments is to think about it as, expose my enemies to your love, but your love as, which can sometimes take the shape of wrath in order to save the innocent, for one thing, but also to save the very person who is the sinner, who is the abuser, who is the enemy. Perhaps what they need in order to be transformed is an experience of God's love as as a consuming fire. Mm. You know, I'm, st- I'm looking back on the passage that you read for us from Psalm 69 and just looking at one of these lines, for example, towards the end, it says, make their camp desolate with none to dwell in their tents. And if we think, let's say back to the sexual abuse, the crisis, but the the real crimes and misdeeds that were part of that, right? Like the violence upon especially young people and the dereliction of authority. When we say make their camps desolate, the wicked's camps, we mean don't populate the places where they stay, the households that they build. And that'll maybe that means don't let victims, keep victims from that place. But it also might mean empty out those little cultures of sort of security that the wicked have built for themselves, where they've been buffered by others who look the other way, who use their authority to protect the victimizers. Does, I mean, in praying this, it sounds like, gosh, why why are we asking God to do this? But isn't that exactly, to go back to your earlier point, what we most deeply desire in the church is empty out these places. And here it is, the language to ask for that. Right. I think the way that the Imprectory Psalms often start is by imagining or is by talking about like the ha- the house or the city of the just is in ruins 
but the home of the wicked is like secure, right? Like that's so there's there's this reversal of what should be the case. And what the imprecatory psalms ask is for a, a reversal to the way that things should be, which is that the city of the just, we can read that as the church, that it be built back up, that it be restored to the state of order that and, and holiness that God desires, and that the secure homes that the wicked have built, whether that's McCarrick um, with his culture of like securing a bunch of donations and his financial, his power, his power, his financial power securing him from those who report against him. Mm. These sorts of like forms of security were asking to be broken down so that the home of the wicked, which is seem, which is seems to be secure and the wicked are f- so confident that they will never fall that they will be the ones who are left with a camp with a desolate camp no one to abuse no way of protecting themselves no way of protecting themselves from ecclesial discipline but also no way of protecting themselves from god's voice that still small voice that still wants to call to them mm. also and like call them to repentance that is an, a superb and enlightening point there that there has also been a shielding from God's voice in these sort of cultures of abuse that have been built up, right? Like that conscience has been suffocated to the point that you don't even hear the Lord's voice. And to empty out those camps to break down those walls is for God's voice to be able to make its way through again for them to be able to hear it. Let me ask one last thing, and this is, I don't know, maybe this is another angle on it, and it's something that challenged me some years ago when this thought came to me as I was praying the Psalms, that coming over the Psalms and praying on behalf of the victims against the oppressors, the abusers, time and again. It occurred to me that in order to pray those Psalms genuinely, I might also have to make myself available to being identified at times as the oppressor. In other words, when I pray this, it's also an examination of my conscience. Have I done this to someone else in oftentimes small and hidden ways to, you know, levy my advantage against someone or some group or have a secret hidden agenda to build up my own city of, you know, oftentimes small-time wickedness, but it's not always small-time wickedness as somebody else is suffering. What do you think about that? Do we have to see ourselves sometimes as the oppressors in order to pray these psalms fully in Christ? Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the first things that you do when you're reading scripture is you say, where am I? (laughs) And it might not be where I want to be. Like, I might not be the person in the story that I would like to be. I might not be the (laughs) hero. I might not even be the like the the victim, but the innocent victim. Like, that's who I might want to be. But it might turn out that, no, actually, I can't say this in good conscience right now. Like, I know there's Psalms where it says like, look at my soul. I have not taken any wrong steps, et cetera. You know, and it's like, (laughs) Maybe that's only ultimately has a Christological reference, right? Like Christ is the one, only one who can totally pray that purely. Right. But like that's a moment that 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 moment when we were like held up and when we we sort of like stop and reflect. Like I don't know if I can pray this. That's like Scripture doing its work on us yeah. in a certain respect. Like those moments where of un, of discomfort with Scripture are sometimes the most powerful moments of Scripture where we find ourselves identified as someone other than we thought we were and we're forced to deal with that. Like how James talks about like looking in Scripture as in a mirror and then we, it's a mirror though that doesn't just show us the reflection that we already knew, but it shows us who we're supposed to be. And what we need to not do, James says, is like we can't go away as if nothing happened, as if we didn't see that. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thinking about what you're just saying, if we were to take this out of the Psalms and into a gospel parable, if we were to read the Good Samaritan, if I want to identify myself there, like I want to be the Good Samaritan. Okay, maybe sometimes I'm the guy in the ditch. What I never want to see is I'm the robber that put the guy in the ditch, right? And to ask that question that you put there, where am I, is a sort of disarming question. It's not to assume beforehand that I get to pick my role. I have to see myself sometimes being read by Scripture. The Lord is interpreting me, not me choosing where I want to be. Well, let me end then with this, Tim. You say bring them back. What would it mean to bring back the imprecatory Psalms? I mean, it can mean a variety of things. I, for me, it means reading through the Psalter in its entirety. Mm. I, I have about a monthly cycle that I, I read through the Psalms, um, f- about five Psalms a day. And so it, it becomes part of my life to to inhabit this full range of the, the scriptural, of the attitudes, the spiritual attitudes which are modeled for us in the Psalms. But I think it could also mean a, a, a number of things for the church more broadly. It could mean when we're thinking about the sort of press releases that the church is, is making or that individual bishops are making or that lay groups, lay, lay accountability groups are making, think about immersing ourselves in Scripture first before we speak and then allow allow some of that language to filter in. So it's not just the language of the corporate boardroom. So it's not mm-hmm. just the language of, of lawyers and PR consultants. So that it's a language that allows some of that righteous anger or even the sort of like trauma or whatever to come through and to, but to allow the voice of the scriptures to sort of echo in, in ecclesial statements. But I think also something in the long run, I think it is worth considering whether that uh, decision by the commission ultimately to not include the imprecatory psalms, whether we might revise that and like include some of these psalms in the liturgy of the hours. Some of these passages can be a little bit more difficult for and difficult, and sometimes that difficulty is good, but there it can be a time where something is actually harmful. Mm. It might be more helpful in the context of the liturgy of the hours first rather than in the public liturgy. Or if it does happen in the public liturgy, some of these more uh, initially disconcerting passages, there might need to be some preparation, sort of explanation of what's going on. A little catechesis beforehand yeah. or afterwards. Yeah, yeah exactly. That- but I think that there's some there's there's a real treasure to be gained in by retrieving these aspects of the scriptures for us as individuals and for the church. And there's a number of different ways in in our own private prayer, but also ultimately in corporate prayer, we where we could participate more fully in them. Mm. That's a that's a fantastic point you made there at the end that our catechesis would actually follow from our prayer and our prayer is there first rather than having to adopt our prayer to to kind of fit a mold that we think is okay that will not insult or irritate but we can be irritated but we need to teach why we're being irritated in this way right exactly you you have to you can you can have a hard word but that hard word has to be one which has been which has been targeted and which you prepared yeah. the person you prepared the person of the congregation in order to receive so that we don't just close up but that we hear it as the voice of God which is calling us to be transformed. Mm. Friends, I've been talking with Timothy Troutner. He's a doctoral candidate in systematic theology at the University of Notre Dame, currently working on his dissertation. The starting point of our conversation today was an essay he published in our Church Life Journal. I highly recommend this essay. It's a fantastic read and a very convincing case that Tim makes. The title of the essay is Bring Back the Imprecatory Psalms. You can find it at the Church Life Journal. Tim, thanks so much for this conversation today. Thank you. It's been great to talk with you. 
And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life today. Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. The Golden Rule. When you schedule a financial checkup with Notre Dame Federal Credit Union, our people will be helpful and honest and kind. They will look for ways to save you money, and when your checkup is complete, they will send $150 to Redeemer Radio. For more info, visit NotreDameFCU.com elevate. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.